Today's passage, and I mentioned it in the weekly email uh, from passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's one of the most difficult and convoluted passages in all of Paul's letters. There are 15 verses I'm about to read in pretty much every single verse. There, there are scholars who have you know, multiple views they have debated. They have reached wildly different uh, conclusions about all 15 verses. So we've actually transitioned into a new section in the letter. We've been doing a sermon series in 1 Corinthians, if you're visiting and just kind of joining us. But the new section of the letter is addressing problems in their weekly worship service at the church in Corinth, the small city, or large city actually in Greece. And one of those problems was women were allowed to prophesy and pray in the services, um, but they're... They're either not wearing a veil when they're doing so in the worship service, which would have been a a cultural uh, conundrum, or more likely they've done something with their hairstyle that is defying social decorum, and we'll talk more about that. But it's a landmine passage, and you kind of wonder how in the world do we relate this to the 21st century? Uh, To be determined, (laughs) we'll find out. one thing I want to say before I begin is you have to remember Christianity is, it's like a large swimming pool, and there's a shallow end and there's a deep end, and the shallow end is the side that is characterized by controversies over interpretations and theological minutia. Lots of people think the controversies are the things that should be in the deep end, and they love debating the controversies, but they think that's where the big, go- big boys and big girls swim, but no. The controversies are the shallow end. The deep end of the pool are things like the Trinity, you know, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so if, if you're here today and you're new to Christianity, where you need to start is start with the resurrection. Start with Jesus, whether or not he, he rose from the dead. Start with the resurrection and move outward. I mean, there are going to be things that you have lingering questions about. And, you know, they could include the relationship between science and religion, the problem of evil, why does terrible suffering happen to good people, why are there so many different religions in the world, etc. And those questions, they do deserve thoughtful consideration, but they are not, they are not like the core issues of the faith, and neither is head coverings and hairstyles. <laughs> from 1 Corinthians 11. And that's why, quite frankly, most pastors, they do not pe- preach this, uh, ver- these verses. How many of you have actually heard a sermon, sat in through a sermon on the first you know, 16 verses or so of 1 Corinthians 11? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four. So like four of us. And some of us have been church for a, a long time. So uh, we're, we're fools. What is the phrase? We're fools, you know, fear to rush in. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. I'll give it my best shot. But Hopefully, hopefully the Lord will, will give you something through it. Verse 2, we'll read. Now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who praises or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Quick note, something on his head is one perfectly valid way to translate the Greek here, but the Greek is actually rather oblique. And another way you could translate it is literally hanging down from the head, 
as in hair hanging down from the head. I'll explain why that may be important in a minute. It goes on. Uh, Verse 5, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Verse 7, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and the glory of God. So to women is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. And that is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels, of course. (laughs) Verse 11, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. It is, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that, a man, that a, if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Well, let's pray. <laughs> O Holy Spirit, O Lord and giver of life, we believe that you inspired all the words of the Bible and not all of the, of the words you've inspired are equally easy to understand. So we, we come very needful and ask that you would take these words, your words, and you would speak them to us for a profitable message that would build us up in our faith and build us up in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. And God's people said, amen. So many questions. Okay, here's a not comprehensive list of questions from the passage. Number one, is he referencing a veil or is he referencing a hairstyle? Number two, is he talking about the male-female relationships or husband-wife relationships? Number three, what does the word head refer to? Because you could kind of tell it's being used multiple ways. Number four, Is he elevating women or demeaning women? I mean, he says in verse 7, the man is the image and glory of God and woman is the glory of man. It almost sounds as though he's saying women don't possess the image of God. Well, that would be fairly demeaning, wouldn't it? And crazy. Verse number 5, is he speaking about a permanently ordered hierarchy in creation where you have God, like really God over Christ, who's over man, who's over woman, And then number six, in what way does nature tell us that men should have long hair? (laughs) And like, what do you do with biblical characters like Samson, for instance, or John the Baptist, or Paul himself, who actually took vows not to cut their hair? Is that wrong? And then finally, number seven, (laughs) what does verse 10 mean because of the angels? What I know is that some people have uh, placed a lot of stock in this passage, and they have interpreted the passage to basically say, so women are to live under male authority, keep their heads covered in public, and understand that they were created to serve man. That's quite the take. <laughs> is, but is it actually what Paul is saying? Here's my best shot, and you're perfectly free to disagree with almost any piece of this interpretation. But 
here's, here's what I was able to come up with after studying it for a week. In a Greco-Roman city like Corinth in the first century, what we know about respectable women, the way that respectable women would present themselves, is they would wear their hair up, usually braided, in a bun. Like virtually all of the portraits, all of the sculpture from that time and that place depict respectable women's hair done up, not let loose, not loose and let down. You know, the only women who would let their hair down in public were were frankly the prostitutes. And that was shameful. That was considered disgraceful. The other shameful hairstyle that would be present in a time and place like this would be women who shaved their heads, who, who shaved their heads to present more un- androgynously, which would normally be lesbians in the first century presenting as a man or a female prostitute presenting as a boy or as a man. And that, of course, was also considered shameful. There's one other shameful hairstyle that uh, should be mentioned, and do you know what that is? Well, for a man to have long, effeminate hair, whether it was hanging down, you know, past his shoulders, down his back, or teased up in a bun on top of his head, braided bun, that was disgraceful too, because in that instance, a man would be presenting as a woman. And the people who did that, you kind of guessed it, Male prostitutes would do that who wanted, you know, to present themselves in that way. What would not be considered shameful, though, is for a man to have something covering his head in a religious ceremony or service. I mean, in fact, it was common, and you may have seen even pictures of this, for a man to take his toga and in a religious ceremony to, you know, take the toga and cover his head. Covering your head with your toga was a sign of piety. You may also have seen uh, pictures of Jewish men in the, in the ancient past. Sometimes even some pictures of Jesus have Jesus draped with a, a prayer shawl around his shoulder. And, and Jewish men would use a prayer shawl and put it over their heads when they would pray, sometimes in public. Uh, the Jewish high priest, he would wear something on his head. He would wear a, a turban. So why do I bring this up? Well, if you go back to verse 4, When it says, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense based on at least what we we think we know about the culture uh, of that day and that time. Like if Paul is really talking about something covering a man's head, it it just doesn't seem to compute. Similarly, in verse 5, when it says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved, that doesn't make much sense, sense either. Because in that day, in a Greco-Roman culture, women were not veiled in public. It's, it's not like if we went to an Islamic country today where, you, you know, you have to have your burqa. No, they didn't They didn't wear veils in public, except the only people that would do that were people who were part of weird religious cults. Similarly, Jewish women didn't wear veils in public, or they they were not required to wear veils when they went to the synagogue for worship. So, as one scholar puts it, it was not the normal custom for women in Greek and Roman cultures to be veiled. Thus, it is hard to see how their being unveiled in worship could be regarded as controversial or shameful. That makes sense. But there could be something quite controversial 
if he's not, in fact, talking about a veil, but, but talking about uh, hairstyle. I, I know that it became a tradition later on that women were supposed to wear, you know, church hats. Uh, and here you see a picture of uh, African-American women in Jim Crow South. There they are wearing their church hats. And, you know, that actually had its origins in, uh, I mean, the, the slave masters wanted to make the women know their subservient position. And so they were, it was part of the, the codes, the Negro codes, that they had to wear uh, a hat in public. But the thing is, Paul never uses the word veil, and he never uses the word hat, to my knowledge, at all in the passage. Like, if you want to wear a hat to church, that's, that's okay. But it's more of an oblique reference. As I mentioned it earlier, he talks about some hanging down from is what he uses, which probably refers to hair. And so then if that's the case, it, what is the covering that they, they're supposed to have? That, because how does hair function as a covering? Well, if you can imagine one's hair, you know, dolled, dolled up, and braided up in a bun, the, the hair as it was arranged on the top of the head, that would serve as the covering. Are you following me <laughs> at all? Does that make, make Dave says no. <laughs> it doesn't make, well, that's the best I could do at explaining it. <laughs> Here's what may be happening. Women were not allowed to speak in the synagogue, but here in a Christian worship service, they could. They, they could prophesy. They could pray. They were given freedoms like they had never experienced before. I mean, early Christianity was truly liberating for women. And it was Paul himself who taught, we just read it a moment ago, Galatians 3, that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you were all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, possibly, you know, some of the ladies in the church in Corinth they're like running with that idea. And, they, and they're like, male and female, <laughs> doesn't matter. You know, I'm free in Christ. I can present myself however I want. I can let my hair down. I, I, I can do whatever I want because there is no male or female. There's only Christian here. And Paul's like, oh, whoa, sister. Whoa, sister. He's like, hold on a second. He's already emphasized in the letter how, how we should use our Christian freedom and that is to not always insist on our rights, but oftentimes to lay our rights down for the sake of other people. And so you can almost imagine uh, 70 or so folks gathered in a large home with an open-air gazebo in the center of it. We'll look at the, the, the nature of like a, a Roman house church later on as we get uh, a couple chapters later. But the women would sit on this side, and the men would sit on this side. They were separated as they were in the synagogue. And um, think how shameful it would be for the women to arrive sitting over here. And, well, they start letting their hair down, you know, together. And, and the, the husbands are sitting over here seeing this. And, and maybe, you know, some of the women get up and they have a prayer to pray and they have a prophecy to deliver and they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they are presenting, you know, kind of like a prostitute. And, and Paul's like, sisters, like, let's not defy social norms and decorum. There's no, no need to stand out in that way. Like, we are all valued here, um, 
We all are. You know, and that's my best guess of, um, of what's going on. Now, if that's reading is, cor- is correct, and it's a big if, if that's correct, what might, it, what might it mean for us today? I've got two ideas. First, number one, I think we should acknowledge, we need to acknowledge to start off, that sex-appropriate clothing and hairstyle, what, what is appropriate for men and what is appropriate for women, that is culturally determined. Uh, you know, Paul refers to nature in the passage, but his reference to nature certainly seems to be his language here for a culturally determined appropriateness in the, the social setting that you are in. You know, we all know, I think, that what some cultures consider masculine, some cu- cultures consider feminine. For instance, if you look at this picture, here we have a, a, a bunch of Polynesian men who uh, are ripped. <laughs> They've got quite the muscles, and they are wearing, anybody know what that skirt is called? It's a lava-lava, right? And in, on the Polynesian islands, a skirt-light wraparound, that's considered masculine. And I suppose if you have muscles like that, you can wear whatever you want. But, but in America, you know, guys don't normally wear a lava-lava, do they? And, and when you see guys that they're really into Scottish stuff and they're wearing kilts, we're kind of like, that's a little weird, right? We don't wear skirts. We have our own cultural codes that distinguish men and women. In most ancient cultures, the line between men and women's clothing and hairstyles was pretty black and white. Women wore one thing, men another. But, you know, in the modern West, it's a little more blurry, isn't it? Men can wear jeans. Women can wear jeans. Women wear suits. Men wear suits. Both men and women have long hair. The, the, lines, the lines are a bit blurry. But even in the West, some things are reserved for one sex and not the other. Dresses, high heels, two-piece bathing suits are clearly right now women's attire. Not that wearing them makes you female, female or that all females must dress like that, but it is reserved for females. I know this is not the perfect analogy, but, but just try and consider it for a second. What if someone showed up to Reconciled Church and found all the ladies in the church wearing bikinis? No, we became known as the, as the bikini church. That would be, that would be kind of scary. That would be inappropriate. Or, or worse, what if someone showed up to the church and found all the men wearing bikinis? <laughs> like, think of the shame. Think of the abject shame that Aaron would feel <laughs> if I preached a Sunday in a, in a bikini. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of shame component that sort of like, this should never happen, probably, probably was going on in Corinth. And so one of the takeaways certainly should be, especially when leading worship, you know, men and women should maintain their gender distinctions in the way they present themselves, and we shouldn't dress in a manner that distracts other people or shames other people or calls unnecessary attention to ourselves. And while we would totally agree that that inappropriate dress, inappropriate hairstyle is going to differ from culture to culture, we should be, I think, respectful of the cultural place and time that we live right now. You know, we we should, and that's that's good. We should use our freedom consistent with the place where God has situated us. That's the first takeaway that I could come up with. The second, the second thing it might mean for us today, I'm just struck by the fact 
that they made space for women's voices in their worship service. As I said, women were not allowed to even speak in the synagogue. It was an entirely, you know, male vocal experience. And yet that was not the way the very first picture we have of a Christian worship service, which is here in this letter, that's not the way that God did it in Corinth. You know, I'm just struck by the fact that today you can go to a lot of churches and you will never hear a woman speak. You'll never hear a woman pray. You'll, you'll ne- a woman's voice won't be heard. And it's almost like we're reverting back to the synagogue when now that's, we don't need to be that restrictive. We absolutely don't need to be that restrictive. Um, God's given us more freedom than that. And so I, I don't know. Um, I, trying to find ways that women can pre- to pray and women can encourage and women can read scripture. And I've always kind of thought that the reading of scripture and the delivery of prophecy were somewhat similar because both of them are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that's been... That's been a consistent, you know, value that we've had as a church from, from, our, from our inception. And I guess it's important for you to understand that that's you know, part of my reasoning and our reasoning behind it. Uh, do any of us know how to prophesy? <laughs> I suppose if you, uh, if you have what you think is truly a prophecy from the Lord, uh, why don't you talk to me about it, run it by me? I, I'm not entirely against or opposed the idea that someone may have the prophetic gift and could prophesy in church on Sunday. But uh, let's talk about that first before we try to do it. Okay, moving on. Now, we may get distracted by the topic of either head coverings, he may be talking about veils or hairstyles, but the bulk of the passage actually focuses on the why behind it and not the, the what. And the why we see in verse 3 and verses 7 and 12 is really confusing. Uh, We're going to go through this pretty quickly, but let's look at verse 3. And his use of head, the the Greek word for head is kephale. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, kephale, head, when it's not referring simply to the literal head on, on top of a body, when it's being used metaphorically, it, it has several common meanings, and they are authority over or rule, ruler, you know, which would mean like a husband, men occupy a kind of God-given position of authority and leadership, either over their wives, or some people say over women in general, or over the church in particular. He could be referring to that, or he could be referring to source, origin, beginning, and this would, if he is, in the second instance, he would be drawing heavily from Genesis chapter 2, because, you know, God, Jesus was there at creation. He formed the man, Adam, first. He was the source of the man, and then the image that we have in the book of Genesis is the man is split open, and from half of him, from his side, it's probably side, not a rib. From half of his side comes the woman. And so the man becomes the source, the head of the woman there. He may be saying that. No. Or if then finally, it can also refer to preeminence, prominence, foremost, or first. Uh, this third view may sound very close to the first view, but it's actually quite different because something can be prominent, for instance, and not necessarily be in a position of authority over uh, the others, like you could have a prominent mountain peak 
in, in a mountain range, and yet that peak is not exercising authority over all of the other mountains. What makes this so challenging is, is that the language, you know, meanings and language, they're not always mutually exclusive, right? Paul, he could have multiple meanings. He could mean source and not authority or prominence, or he could mean source and also authority, or he could mean source, prominence, and authority. I mean, to give you an example, if I said a king is the head of his family, well, that could mean all three at once, you know? As a father, he's the source of his kids. As a king, he's the foremost, he's the most prominent. And as a king, he would also be an authority figure over his family and, and, and over the entire, uh, the entire nation. But if you said that I have found, let's say you said, I found the source of the river, what you would be referring to there, you're probably only talking, uh, sorry, not source of the river, head, I, I found the head of the river, the headwaters of the river. Uh, then you would be obviously referring to the source, and you're probably not talking about you know, prominence or, um, or you know, authority or rule over. And so, you know, which is he talking about? What's the right understanding? After studying the passage this week, I've come to the definite conclusion, drum roll, that I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what is the right interpretation. There's actually a scholar that I respect and I'm following, and he is doing a series of blog posts on this very thing, like six or seven blog posts on Kefale in 1 Corinthians 11, and he's kind of slow rolling them out. So once I hear his conclusions, then you know, maybe I'll agree with him and, and reach the same conclusion, but I don't know, and I don't think there's any shame in saying I don't know. A lot of times we, th- we, somebody will come to us with a question about theology or the Bible, and we think that the responsibility is on us to have, you know, the, a great ha- answer right on the spot, and, and, and you don't. You really, you don't have to. People, people, they respect the fact, at least I hope you respect the fact, that, you know, I can say to you, I, I don't know. It's confusing, you know, and I, and I don't have to know. We don't have to be absolutely certain about everything in the Bible. And most people are not, you know, they don't get their, their selves too frazzled if, um, if you tell them that. Okay, I'm going to speed through the rest of those verses and just show you one way it could be read. Verses 7 and 8. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and the glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. How is woman the, the, the glory of man? Well, remember the Genesis story again. When Eve is created, what did Adam do? He rejoiced. <laughs> He, he gloried in his wife. He starts singing spontaneously, and there's Hebrew poetry there. And so he rejoices over the woman, and he glories over her. Verse 9, Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Again, remember, the reason the woman in Genesis 2 was created was because Adam, he needed her, he needed help, and there was no way that he could fulfill God's Commission God's mandate to fill the earth, be fruitful, to cultivate the earth, to cultivate, you know, the wild of the earth on his own. He could not do it on his own. Uh, and so she was created you know, for the sake of the man to help what 
to help him in his deficiency. Verse 10, this is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I'm not sure about this interpretation, but Jewish rabbis argued that the original creation was such an incredible event. There must have been an audience to praise God for his wonderful accomplishments in you know, the days of creation. But there were no people until the seventh day. Uh, so who would be there? Who would be there to, to laud and praise God for his creation? And the answer they gave is the angels. The angels were there at the creation moment. Um, Paul seems to be saying that angels are actually in our worship services. They are present when the body of Christ gathers for worship. And so he says, I want the angels to look at you and basically not see crazy stuff going on. I want to see women uh, being respectable and and following social decorum and honoring their husbands and, and husbands likewise honoring men and so that the angels who are there will applaud you as they applauded the father at the beginning of creation and not be scandalized verses 11 and 12 for in the lord however woman is not independent of man and man is not independent of woman which was a very revolutionary statement in their day for just as a woman came from man so man also comes from woman through woman and all things come from God. And here, the emphasis is, is, on, is on our interdependence. Like, we need each other. We, we depend on each other. It, it's, not a, it's not a battle of the sexes passage. It's, it's we really need one another. How do I wrap this all up? <clears throat> well, a few months ago, I came across a YouTube video called How to Escape a Police-Sniffing Dog. <laughs> and in this fun video the YouTuber, he does all kinds of, of crazy hide-and-seek experiments to see if he can uh, lose this search-and-rescue dog named Zinka and her trainer named Shay. And it's really a remarkable video if you want to look it up. It's done by uh, Mark Rober. In one of the experiments in the video, they rub a paper towel on the arms of 12 different people And then they have only one of those people go and hide. And uh, and they have the 11 other people uh, there. And so they give the the scent to the dog. He smells it, smells a paper towel, smells the other people. And he's supposed to find out which scent on that paper towel is the scent that is missing. And she goes out and she ends up sniffing and finding the missing person. Now, how in the world... Can a dog identify people so accurately from a scent, especially when it's mixed with so many other scents? And the YouTuber who has a background in science, he initially theorized that it's because of our DNA. Our unique DNA molecules are found on the skin, and the dog is recognizing this. So he does another experiment. He brings in identical twins who have matching DNA, and they rub a paper towel on the arm of only one twin. They have her hide, and then they had the other twin sit in plain sight as uh, on the way to, to find the, the, other, the other twin. So the dog has to pass by the, one of the identical twins first, the twin that didn't have the rub down. And what does the dog do? Goes right by the incorrect twin without hesitation and follows the scent trail to the right one, successfully finding uh, the correct twin. He said, well, this test, test suggests that 
the dog is not using DNA, but is rather picking up on a complex scent comprised of unique chemical compounds. In other words, like every, every single one of us smells different, right? <laughs> we all smell different. We all look different. Everyone in the world has a totally and completely unique smell, unique size, unique shape. Out of the 8 billion people in the world, no, there is no one exactly like you. There's no one who smells exactly like you. There's no one who stinks like you. (laughs) You know, and it means that you are findable by a dog. And so you can guarantee that the designer of that dog, the designer of the incredible dog that can find you, he he sees you, he knows you, he he can find you, and he loves you. And and to him, we we are really so unique, all unique. And from our smells from our looks, from our internal, internal, you know, our souls, our, our life experiences. And he sees all of that. He knows all of that. Like, we, we stand out to him without having to try to stand out. <laughs> we stand out to him without having to try to stand out. We don't, we don't have to assert ourselves in a way, you know, to gain attention at church, not that I see anybody trying to do that or, or otherwise, because, like, we are somebody. All of us are somebody to the God of the universe. You know, he sees you, and in Christ, he loves you the way you are. He loves you the, the man that he made you to be, the woman that he made you to be. And, you know, I just pray that we, as we go forward in forming this community, we could be a community that, that sees each other, too, <laughs> and that you know, values one another, and the men and women alike feel valued, feel seen, feel known, um, because we'll need each other as we try to swim in the deep end of the pool. 